everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. I'm your host Evan. And I'm your host Tom. Uh, and welcome wherever you are, hope you're in having a lovely day. What are you going to talk about today, Tom? Uh, today, I uh, well first of all, because it's an emergency recording on, on Thursday evening, <laughs> I only managed to prepare uh, my, bit, my main bit, um, which is actually an experimental non-inflammatory vaccine for multiple sclerosis based on the mRNA technology. So it's the same technology that they're using in the vaccines for COVID right now. The the only thing that overlaps is the fact that it's both mRNA. The the mode of action is completely different and that's what's interesting. Okay, cool. Sounds, uh, yeah, definitely sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today uh, I'm going to talk about, as well, discuss the whole AstraZeneca being age-restricted in a lot of countries now. I had mentioned this in the last episode, but I think there's been more development and I just wanted to give another final uh, assessment of the whole situation and uh, see what I've found uh, and come to the realisation too. So, uh, And I'm, I'm trying to make it clearer as well for our listeners because I know it's been a lot discussed in the news and just to make it uh, easier for people to understand as well. So... Um, please stay tuned and uh, yeah uh, before we get into the the news headlines are do you, do you have anything you want to talk about Tom or do you want to you have something uh, you want to I so I have prepared a little personality quest quiz for us uh, no questions and answers required so that's a good thing uh, because I do feel Evan that you could improve um, your personality so <laughs> I think now we can what are you uh, trying to say see, uh, just be nice. Be nicer. I suppose. Be nice. <laughs> yeah, so, um, Melania Trump is it's, it. <laughs> I hate Christmas. Uh, <laughs> what I was going to say is, um, so I have this quiz, uh, which we can get into right now, unless um, you have uh, you have something you want to talk about that happened in your life. Uh, no, we can get into the quiz as well. Uh, John's here too, so he can partake, so we can see how we all, how our personalities all aligned together so yeah we'll see if um, if what the if what the personality quiz will tell us uh, if you agree with it i'm already skeptical <laughs> it's a, it's a blood type personality quiz straight from japan oh, for <laughs> so this is is this building on from our last episode where we talked I, about last two episodes nearly where we talked about blood sort of yeah <clears throat> i i thought that would be i was meant to do it er- earlier but um just didn't happen but anyway what 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 does in Japan people believe that certain all the, the main four blood groups carry certain characteristic with you? And okay. What and yeah, basically that's what it is. Okay. What, what I was going to say is uh, I'm in a bad mood right now because I'm more positive. I mean, at least there's, there's, really probably, there's probably more science behind it than than, than astrology or something. Okay, so will I start with Evan? Yeah, and yeah. I will. I will. It's oh, so, basically, I'm just gonna read it out for you. What your personality oh, traits okay. are based on your blood group, and then you can tell me. And can I ask? Is it based mm-hmm. on just your ABO or your rhesus as well? Uh, no, it's just ABO. <laughs> okay, like, but there's, so there's, only three, there's only three different personalities. Oh no, four. Well, sorry, because AB, 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 and O. Okay. Uh, I I don't think. Yeah, people probably who came up with it, they were not aware that there is like 32 <laughs> other blood groups. So. Okay, are yeah. you ready, Evan? Da, da, da. But like, can I ask? Are, sorry, the, yeah. I keep 
we're both oh so whatever you're reading for me is you as well oh that's fine that's okay (laughs) so you can't Um, make fun of me if it says one thing oh no we still can we absolutely still can it's it's all it's all good okay um so who who's blood uh, blood type a who are you evan a no john i'm O. I don't know my blood type so i know my mother's and my father's uh most likely it's b but i could also be a or a b so we're going to we're going to predict what john's blood type is based on his uh personality which one aligns most to this japanese personality yes. test oh, yes. i think we me and tom are going to be decide which we want <laughs> okay that's exciting now i'm fired up okay we'll start then we start with the blood type o because um that's me and evan and that's uh, and then we're gonna re- read out the last the rest okay evan so this is what typical o is typical o is energetic practical and friendly it's labeled as a natural leader. They are expert at expressing their opinions in a constructive way. <laughs> <laughs> they are not. They no. are known how to. Um, they know how to control their emotions very well, giving others a great impression of being stable and under control. <laughs> uh, people with blood group O have some difficulties expressing their feelings due to fear of rejection. Mm. And also they tend to burn themselves out trying to get things done perfectly. Would that would you agree with that, Evan? Well, okay. I definitely disagree with getting their opinions across constructively, because I definitely <laughs> am not that type of person. I think a lot of people can testify that, but maybe yeah, like you're neutral chaotic. Yeah, maybe the bit about hiding their feelings because of rejection. <laughs> so maybe. a lot of all of the positive things you just highlighted, <laughs> hiding feelings. <laughs> you are you didn't describe yourself as energetic like, that's friendly or just like no oh, I yeah, just hide I my feelings it's <laughs> <laughs> the most recent ones I could think of I can okay. remember but like yeah it's so vague it's like one and the other and this and that okay what but, do you mean it's based on your blood group like it couldn't oh, be any oh, more yeah, specific sorry. I'm mistaken uh, okay so I think I think I agree for certain things uh, <laughs> with me definitely see myself as a stable person and yeah. a leader uh, uh yeah great leadership <laughs> great leadership and definitely not afraid to express my feelings so um that's not right we can then. scratch this one out <laughs> and i do see myself as a ceo uh of some future company which is also linked with the uh, blood group o <laughs> but that's enough about us let's see if we can guess john's blood group okay okay so we're gonna start with blood group a According to the Japanese blood type uh, personality chart, it is said that people with the blood type A are known to be diplomatic and friendly. However, due to their sensitive nature, they prefer staying alone to being in a group. Uh, Also, they are fragile hearted and easily get hurt. Therefore, it takes time for them to open up to people. Uh, if if you want to be friends with person with blood type A, the best way is to be patient and get to know them slowly. Once you get to know them, you will find that they are very friendly and down to earth. Uh, when people describe blood type A, you will often hear people with blood type A are are earnest and sensitive. Uh, they methodical, caution, stubborn sometimes, very detailed and that's about it so yeah, keep that, that in so, mind that sounds like that's pretty good that's what do you think yeah i'd say that sounds a lot of that sounds like me 
Except for the okay. part where it kind of implied that I'm slow to accept friends. It sounded like you really need to work on but it your just relationship sounds, with it me. Just, it just sounds like you, they're an introverted person. And I'm like, is introverted related to blood type? Like, really? <laughs> I don't know. Well, like, I, John, got to know you a couple of years ago. And I think I didn't have problems, like, befriending you. Yeah, so. that's the only part of that I wouldn't agree with. I don't, I don't yeah. think it's... I don't think you need to work and like do a big thesis to become my friend and like tom (laughs) i like becoming friends with tom it was a really uh long slog just natural no it was a long slog i think i think me and you tom we first met in anandos i think that's in dublin (laughs) yeah yeah could have been or was it evan's birthday i don't remember now yeah it was it was the nandos oh okay yeah okay Uh, okay i'm gonna move to the blood group b now uh Type B are most outgo- are the most outgoing uh, people compared to other blood types. They are independent and passionate about the things they are interested in. Type B always seeks stimulation and they are not afraid of speaking their mind. Therefore, they can be seen as self-centered because they express their opinion regardless of what the other person might feel. Um, it sounds like the whole country of the Netherlands is blood group B. Uh, <laughs> it just sounds like an extroverted person. They're like describing the opposite of A. Like, I don't. Well, I just mean from the perspective of being like you know s- saying what they think, being straightforward. Oh, okay. Um, I think the the Dutch people are known to be uh, straight headers. Uh, men with blood type B have a negative reputation for being playboys. Oh. <laughs> And for not suitable for a stable relationship. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> but, they do, uh, but don't worry, although blood type B has a negative reputation for being the blood type of a playboy, uh, there are many positive traits too. They are curious, honest, and enjoy attention. Therefore, people with blood type B can make friends easily, like a social butterfly. And when they describe someone with blood type B, they often say creative, optimistic, but also selfish and irresponsible. Oh my god! So bees like sounds like the worst. I, I don't, don't. Yeah, I don't know if, uh, if I don't I, identify with any of that. Yeah. No. I think. I wouldn't no. like. Should I put my blood group in my bio, my Tinder bio? <laughs> <laughs> Is this like to show I'm not a blood group B? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if you maybe if you swipe in one of the Asian countries. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, can or, I predict? I predict A B is just going to be a mixture between A and B personalities. How I, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, should tell me. Let's see. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Um, Based on the statistics of my parents' blood types, AB is my most likely blood type. Just to recap, so oh, okay. you're going to read AB now. Is that right? Yeah, it's the AB. It's the time for the AB now. Okay. Okay. So the first two words they use to describe an AB is genius or psycho. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You guys decide. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it continues. They are unpredictable because they uh, often jump around from one activity to next, and their temperament is mixture of blood t- of blood type A and B. Therefore, their personalities change quickly depending on their mood oh, and okay. the situation. Who was right? Mm. I was told. Uh, you yeah you did say that they also are rational thinkers. Therefore, they can stand uh, stand it when they find some they find themselves in situations, in the hard situations. Uh, they might have some difficulties interacting with people and they are being described as rational, to be talented, critical, but also eccentric. 
Mm. Um, I don't know. I think not you're really. still somewhere like A, though. I'm not eccentric. Yeah. I don't think I, I am. I wasn't so. so vague, to be honest. But yeah, again, but I... I don't it's know a personality <laughs> yeah. trait yeah. based on your blood group. I don't think they can be very specific because <laughs> then would be just four types of personalities in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I'm I'm sure if you look into it, there'll be a couple of things that you'd be like, oh yeah, that's definitely me. You know yeah. the kind of way. Yeah. So we should get arranged to get John a blood group test now, and we can uh, we can um, see who is what yeah. team or like if it matches up. I think the easiest way is just to go and donate blood, I think. Yeah. And then, then you can just the, ask what's your what's your blood group. Bring it to the IBTS the next time. Mm. Um okay, that was cool. That was it just that, that was, was a bit uh, of a laugh. Yeah, just just something to have a bit of a laugh, like you know. So let us know what a personality did it match up for you on our uh, <laughs> Instagram and uh, on our Twitter. Oh yeah. Uh, we would love to hear. What's that what's that username, Evan? Uh skeptically I Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> uh, cool. Yeah, that was that was interesting. Um, so yeah, if you want to find out your blood group, we recommend definitely just to donate some blood and you can find out that yeah. way. That's always a good cause um, to give blood. Um, it's very vital. Um, so yes, uh, I'll go on to then, we'll do before I go into our main stories, we'll go into the my news headline briefly. And I think this was mm-hmm. a continuation of one of the stories that you had a very interest early on, Tom, about Homo sapiens and the Neanderthals. And there was a new recent paper that showed that the oldest DNA from a Homo sapien revealed its surprisingly recent Neanderthal ancestry. So scientists have sequenced the oldest Homo sapien DNA on record, showing that many of Europe's first humans had Neanderthals in their family trees. This is something I think you had previously said before that mm. we did mix with the Neanderthals. Yes, we did. Uh, and yet these individuals, it's interesting, these ones, the the DNA that they managed to sequence to show that they had Neanderthal DNA, these actually aren't related to later Europeans. And actually genome studies uh, of these remains are more likely to be related to Asians and Native Americans rather than they are to Europeans even though these were found more than 45,000 years ago in caves in Bulgaria and in the Czech Republic this is where they got the DNA samples mm-hmm. so it's very interesting in that they mixed these obviously still even though they were found in Europe they obviously still roamed a lot of the land and settled obviously later on in uh, uh, Asia so they are other parts of the world Okay, but okay. So I just, I just, if you can clarify this for me, because I don't, I, I think I got confused. Yeah. Does it mean that these guys that they were that were found in Bulgaria and Czech Republic, you said? Yeah. Yeah. The, so were they people who migrated from Asia towards the mainline Europe, or was it? I think they came they from. The descent, I think they the, came from Africa to the Middle East to Europe, and then they. I think they must have ended up going back over to asia from there oh okay okay um, i see i see that okay so yeah so although researchers have sequenced dna from neanderthals and other extinct human relatives i think you talked about denisova people yeah um these they stayed back as far as four hundred thirty thousand years ago there's a scarcity of genetic information from the period 
between around 47,000 and 40,000 years ago with no Homo sapiens DNA being able to be isolated from this period. And mm. uh, so this was really, really interesting finding that they were able to get these samples. Uh, and it's shown that everyone, except those whose ancestry isn't solely African, because if you're solely African, you never um, originated to other continents. Though everyone carries Neanderthal DNA. Uh, and researchers thought that this originated from mixing between the groups in the Middle East between 50 to 60,000 years ago. Uh, but a study, a 2015 study from a 40,000 year old Romanian individual showed that there was Neanderthal, Neanderthal ancestor within the past four to six generations, suggesting that humans interbred with Neanderthals in Europe too. Uh, and it was still unclear if interbreeding was in common in Europe as this individual lived at a time when Neanderthal populations were beginning to vanish from the region. Uh, and then this recent study shows that individuals identified in Bulgaria, dated between roughly 42 to 45,000 years ago, all had recent Neanderthal forebears. And modern non-Africans usually harbour around 2% Neanderthal ancestry, but these Bulgarian people had slightly more at 34 to 3.8%. Uh, and they estimated that these Neanderthal ancestors were as recent as the past six or seven generations. So it was quite recent that they were interbreeding with Neanderthals, even though these Neanderthals were nearly gone extinct at this time, roughly mm. when they, they were interbreeding. Uh, but yeah, so, and as I said, they, they didn't find that modern Europeans are related to these individuals, but they are more in connection with East Asians and Native Americans. Uh, and it's thought that these people represented a population that once lived across Eurasia, but has now since vanished from Europe and now lives on within Asia. So uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? It just shows that we were just yeah mixing around with everything back then, and yeah. But people, it's just crazy people... that that we Homo sapiens managed to s survive and Neanderthals died out, um, and that uh, yeah, there is a there is so many uh, kind of hypotheses or different uh, school of thoughts thinking what was exactly the the reason of demise of the neanderthals was it whether it was whether they were just being out hunted by homo sapiens which were yeah. technically better at hunting uh, prey whether we actually killed them as a, as a part of a, a competition for resources and stuff like that or whether it was the uh, uh, the change in the climate in the climate and of course neanderthals will evolutionary suited to li to live in this um, ice age um, environment and you know once uh, once that kind of uh, was gone it was kind of harder for them to adapt whereas the the most common the common the common the homo sapiens didn't have that problem with adaptation you know so yeah. there's different um, but it's 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 clear it's clear that we didn't discriminate and yeah. we just loved everyone which we is loved everyone equally yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> take that message home with you <laughs> love everyone equally um so yeah thought it was interesting and uh just shows that definitely we, uh we're more made of more than you think and, and again DNA. love knows no boundaries <laughs> yeah oh yeah that was it that was your like uh from right when we talked about this the last time like you painted it yeah. as a love story there was cave rain outside yeah exactly cool uh yeah grand so yeah we're just going to our main stories then um i wanted to talk about again the astrazeneca vaccine i know we've talked about it a lot on the podcast 
but now further information's come to light and I just wanted to kind of give one more assessment of how it is, what what's happened, the timeline, and if and kind of break it down for people to maybe understand if you didn't you were following this uh, news and weren't sure hopefully I can help you explain it to people uh, I know we've talked about it with Luke O'Neill and w- w- we've all agreed that the benefits outweigh the risk and I suppose especially I think you John were kind of disappointed that it was stopped like so the recent news in Ireland was that it was going to be age restricted to over 60s so it was only 60 to 69 year olds could get the AstraZeneca vaccine I think it's the same in a lot of countries I think in Denmark now as well they've completely uh cancelled using the AstraZeneca vaccine so um I just you were yeah you were very disappointed about the whole thing yeah um (laughs) I think I don't think they weighed it up correctly uh just on the Denmark thing I think they did say though that if their COVID situation was worse they would definitely use the AstraZeneca vaccine so I think it was more that they're in a decent enough shape that they have enough of the other vaccines to compensate um yeah so i've always been on that side that i think it's a rare event that we shouldn't worry and we can't really show that there's a an effect but i've been reading about it since and i kind of want to give you my perspective anyways um yeah and i can i just start as well saying that if you were offered the oxford astrazeneca vaccine i definitely recommend you take it because it's still shown to be highly effective at preventing severe disease and death from covid19 even with a single dose so um that's why i would say it is good to use but um yeah that's i just wanted to make that clear from the beginning um but yeah there's been so many twists and turns in this story with astrazeneca from like with their publication of the results that were a bit unusual and (laughs) now with like delivering in the eu and everything like that and then it was they didn't have the efficacy data in older people so it was restricted in that and now it's come then it was paused reinstated and all this so i just wanted to it's it's just been a mad ride for this whole um vaccine the Um, the process the process of developing this vaccine sounds like my lab journal like (laughs) everything is there but it's like so chaotic that it's very hard to find your way around yeah exactly so it was in march that concerns were raised over possible thrombosis after immunization with the AZ vaccine. I'm just going to call it AZ AstraZeneca. Uh, <clears throat> and one of the first official reports from the EMA on the 10th of March noted four cases of thrombosis in people immunized with a single batch of the vaccine in Austria, including at least two severe cases and one death. The following day, reports emerged of death in Denmark and the country suspended use of the vaccine to allow time for investigation with several other countries following suit, including Ireland and the Netherlands. Um, subsequently, the focus of attention narrowed from thrombosis to this general cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. It's a rare condition where uh, you get clots within the brain. I'm just going to call it C- uh, CVST from here out. Um, so this CVST, it has a background incidence of around 15 cases per million every year, according to studies from Australia and the Netherlands. Um, and it's a yeah it's cvst it's a rare cause of stroke that generally affects younger adults and women more than men with important risk factors including pregnancy and hormonal contraceptive hormonal <laughs> contraceptives um yeah so a lot of people including me have always maintained that correlation doesn't always mean causation so 
it was super rare and there was no real proof to show that because you got the vaccine you was definitely led to thrombosis uh, and it's especially it's difficult with rare side effects that to show there's a link between the two can be super difficult as chance clusters of rare events occur quite commonly on observations or analyses of large groups and ideally you would want to be able to link an adverse event with the vaccine using a specific lab test so for example an early version of the polio vaccine uh, it used a weakened form of the virus to generate immunity. It caused roughly one to develop the disease for every 2.4 million doses given. Uh, and the virus strain using the vaccine could be isolated from the spinal fluid. And then therefore you could be like, okay, this is exactly the same as what it's using the vaccine. We can call it, say, oh, this vaccine is causing this um, polio in this case mm-hmm. because it, there's a direct link between the two. But this is impossible for most adverse events, either because there aren't specific biomarkers for the adverse event or because the test kind of isn't practical. And initially, the events are only linked because of their timing. So a person will receive the vaccine and then they'll experience the side effect at some point afterwards. Uh, And this makes it particularly challenging to prove whether the adverse event was actually caused by the vaccine because there is time and these things can happen randomly or by chance. Uh, and so the, to investigate the link, researchers conduct studies to determine the rate of adverse events in vaccinated populations compared with the probability that they occur by chance in people who haven't received the vaccine. Uh, and you also would need to determine the mechanism that c- could have caused the reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one example I also I want to bring up, um, because this is one a recent one, um, I'd say everyone has heard about this. I don't know if you've heard with the H1N1 vaccine uh, and it was an epilepsy. Have you ever heard of this link? I'm trying to think. Uh, it's very foggy. So so uh, back in mm-hmm. when we all had H1N1, a lot of people had to get that vaccine. The public health agencies, it was in Sweden and Finland. They raised the alarm about an increased rate of narcolepsy which is a chronic and debilitating sleep disorder mm-hmm. in children who received a dose of this vaccine made by this company, Pandemrix. Uh, and incidents of narcolepsy were reported at a rate of about one case per 18,400 vaccine doses, much higher than they would be expected by chance. So public health officials became concerned that a component of the vaccine used to increase the body's immune response, the adjuvant, was increasing the risk. Uh, and early studies suggested that pandemrix did increase the risk of narcolepsy, did increase the risk of narcolepsy in certain age groups, but the results were still too variable to draw broad conclusions. So now, ten years since this pandemic has ended, scientists are still not fully agreeing about the nature of the link between the vaccine and narcolepsy. Uh, and in 2018, one study concluded that the adjuvants alone were not associated with increased risk of developing narcolepsy. So they, the researchers compared the background rates of narcolepsy in seven countries uh, with the rates in the groups vaccinated with Pandemrix and two other H1N1 vaccines containing adjuvants. And they found that it was the same in most all these countries, except in Sweden, where it was raised originally. And they considered that reports of narcolepsy increased in Europe after people became aware of its potential association with the vaccine. 
uh, and still an exact mechanism was not really confirmed. So even with this well-publicized adverse event, it's still not sure if there's a directly linked cause. So this is why it's so controversial to try and make a link between the two. Yeah, but here with this narcolepsy study, you said they couldn't find a, a pathway or mechanism. Yeah. But for the AstraZeneca, there are, they are suspecting some possible pathways or mechanisms that could lead to that. Yeah. So I think that makes it more plausible. And then I saw that the then uh, Danish government, yeah, Danish government, uh, they released their statistics saying that they 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 assess the prevalence of the clots as one in one in forty thousand people. Yeah. So I get what you're saying, and this is why I, at the beginning I was like, yeah, that makes sense that it's very hard to prove. But so from the ENA briefing that happened uh, recently, we learned that other blood clots associated with thrombocytopenia which is when your platelet count becomes very low, was being reported following the AstraZeneca vaccine. And this included arterial thrombosis and splenotic vein thrombosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this compared to the clinical picture to a similar heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which I've mentioned last week. Um, It's when you get heparin and you you build an immune reaction to the uh, thrombocytopenia your platelets uh specifically platelet factor four and this causes the um the immune cascade where your clotting starts um and yeah all patients in each series had high levels of antibodies against platelet factor four as seen in uh, heparin induced thrombocytopenia uh, but the thing is, is like in these studies, they specifically were looking at these patients and they weren't really controlling it for the background within the general po- population. So it's kind of biased in that you're only looking at these patients where they need to be looking at. They need to be looking in the general population. True. But, but what if uh, what if the same thing will start happening with Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, which are also which is the mechanism of the vaccine is quite similar to AstraZeneca's, it, but they are based on the yeah. AEV. So, yeah, this, so this is just another argument I'm trying to use against it, but okay. there has been more new information that's come out. Um, but yeah, they've called this thrombocyte, this thrombosis uh, mm-hmm. as vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Mm-hmm. And they said potential treatments could include high-dose immunoglobulins and certain non-heparin anticoagulants. Uh, and now the UK Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency has received 79 reports of thrombosis associated with low platelets. This is by the 31st of March, of which 44 were the CVST, the cerebral venous. Of these 79 cases, 51 were in women, which 13 were fatal, and 28 were in men, with 6 were fatal, and these all occurred after the first dose. The risk was higher in younger age groups starting at 1.1 serious harm events for per 100,000 immunised people among those aged 20 to 29, and this fell to 0.2 per 100,000 in those aged 60 to 69. So for comparison, in women taking hormonal contraceptives, the risk of thrombosis is about 60 per 100,000 and the risk of fatal pulmonary embolism is about 1 in 100,000. So it's much higher actually in if you took in women who take the contraceptive pill. 
Uh, and in most adult age groups, the benefits of the AZ vaccine far outweighs the risk, with the exception being the 20 to 29 age group, for which the risk-benefit equation is more finely bar- balanced, especially when community transmission is low. So I think this is a big uh, talking point, is that they're weighing up the risk, and they're seeing that in these pa- in patients that are young, they're more likely to survive COVID infection so the risk of giving them the vaccine is too high and combined with the fact there is other vaccines at the moment that they can use um so what was it can I ask you can I ask you a question Evan yeah if you were given right now AstraZeneca or Sputnik 5 which one <laughs> are you taking AstraZeneca I would take <laughs> really yeah you can from, give from someone who's not got a vaccine yet oh, I would yeah. take the AstraZeneca where did I? Sorry, I I thought I had something in about this. So after even all this, I was still like, okay, maybe there isn't. But however, the balance of evidence was clearly shifting at the beginning of April with increased reporting of CVST in the UK as well as in Europe. Uh, this, along with the total absence of cases after immunization with Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, was a strong indicator that this must be a real association, and that that many of those affected also had thrombocytopenia or the slow platelets, which is not normally found in CVST, was also an additional pointer that this was not a random association. So although you can't say there's a definite relationship, it is highly indicative that there is a link between the two. And uh, that's why they had to take it off at the moment. That was the reason behind it, because the risk in young people of getting this clots was really high. And but it is rare still. It is still rare, but the the ba- maybe you should qualify that to like relatively really yeah. high. Um, so yeah, I think they still need to figure out why, why th- why this was happening, um, and try and understand uh what what caused it. Can they can they somehow negate the risk? So far, six cases of serious thrombosis with thrombocytopenia has also been reported after using the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. And to date, about 7 million doses of this vaccine had been administered in the US and Rola has now been paused. There's still a lot we don't know about thrombosis potentially linked to the COVID-19 vaccine. And much of the information used by the regulatory authorities informing their opinion has not been made public. So I think they have a lot more information that they just think is too serious to mean that they want to age restrict the vaccine. Um... So, yeah, all I can say that the benefits do outweigh the risk, and they w- I would re- recommend anyone in the proper age groups to take it. Um, but yeah, that's this is why they decided to pause it. And I I, I was skeptical, and I've talked when we talked to it, Luke, but I suppose it's it's very unfortunate because it's going to slow everything down, and the fact that it is so rare. But um, the question is. The question is, if it wouldn't be for a pandemia that is currently happening, if there would be any other vaccine for any other condition with similar side effects, would they hesitate to take it off or would they still try to uh, make it work? Do you know, because yeah. I, I, you, you can't, you, there is room for argument and there is room to say that they, they're making the best they can to... Um, to show that this vaccine is safe because this vaccine is needed 
right? Because it's the pandemia. But if there will be if there will be any other seasonal disease or whatever, the question is whether that vaccine would still be seen as safe or would it be pulled out from the mar- from the market? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um it's interesting because like everyone has to get this vaccine. Like everyone needs to get it because there's no immunity. So if if it was more restricted in a certain age populations, maybe you wouldn't see this prevalence as much as you are seeing it now. Uh, and it wouldn't be as thought as to be serious as serious. But the fact that you have to do donate, you have to vaccinate so many people. Um, yeah, and it is interesting that they didn't pick that up in the third phase. Yeah, because it is clinical trials. Yeah, it just just shows the rarity of that event. But that do you, you really and can I ask? To, do you agree? Do you think the comparison with those who develop clots when they take the contraceptive pill is fair? Come what? Because this is what a lot of people say of like oh like people who are on the contraceptive pill are way at higher risk of, of a clotting event. Mm. I suppose the one thing is that you don't get this, generally, you don't get the CVST. See, I don't know. I have, I don't really have, I don't know how the, how do you get the contraceptive pills? I don't know if you can just buy them over the counter or do you need like a GP prescription? Because if you do, then I would I would assume that your that your GP or your OBYG they would uh, they would make a, like an assessment of your health status before prescribing you that mm-hmm. pill, so that you would kind of know that if you're they, if they would thought that you're in the risk of developing clots, I wouldn't I wouldn't presume that they will tell you to go ahead and and take the and take the and take that contraceptive. Uh, well, the question is whether how soon it would be possible for the GPs or for any kind of physician to uh, find out whether the person yeah. uh, will develop something or not, you know? Yeah, uh, that's but, something I suppose they want to try and investigate and see if there's a way of assessing the risk. Like, one of the things that they were saying was like, oh, could you look look for antibodies to this platelet activating four, factor four? Mm-hmm. But like, that's just not really feasible to be screening general people in the public with that and at the same time they still cannot they can't say it for sure yet that oh that the vaccine causes this platelet acted anti-platelet activating factor four and this is causing the 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 clotting it's just that they observed this in these patients but this could still be happening in the general public and it's not causing this mm. cvst um so but, do you remember when uh when i men- mentioned that with the Pfizer vaccine, there were the cases of um, anaphylactic reaction, and yeah. and then you know, and then I think it was implemented that if you had a history of reactions, then it is not recommended for you to receive that vaccine. I wonder now if people have a history of clotting disorders or clotting uh, inc- incidences in their history, would they be would they be discouraged from taking uh, yeah. uh, AstraZeneca, like, or would be encouraged to take? A different vaccine rather than yeah. not taking it at all um but i still think that these patients that had or these patients that died if or had serious adverse events was there a known history of clotting uh or severe clotting or clotting issues with these patients i don't know was there so if that's even uh, yeah. a possibility so um yeah Maybe we could consider the widespread use of low dose aspirin in all individuals uh, to try and <laughs> As a reduce the comp. Yeah, to reduce because you do get thrombotic complications of COVID nineteen as well. Um, so maybe that could be another like vitamin D, but I don't know if that's really 
possible yeah. either to yeah. be to to be advising for a blood thinner. I think that's a lot more dangerous than just vitamin D. Um, I, yeah, I think but, it's interesting situation that we have to kind of watch carefully how it develops. Mm. And uh, it just kind of feels that everybody is kind of working in the dark and they're making a decision that just they feel are the right fly, at the yeah. moment. Yeah. yeah. They are re- yeah. You do have to act you do have to commend their swiftness, but it's just gonna feel more skepticism of the vaccine. And if we look at the fifteen point eight million people that have been vaccinated, how many of these would have acquired COVID nineteen if they hadn't been vaccinated? And how much slower would we be to reopening stuff or how we how quickly will we not actually slower or reopening more that how quickly will we be closing everything after we do reopen which hopefully we will in summer so it's like it's very just frustrating because um i know the risk is super slow in in younger people but it's just it's just really annoying that these can still spread it to older people and this is where the risk is and i'm like yeah yeah it just it just i just wish that we could we could keep carrying on and i suppose the fact that we do have another vaccine but it's just going to slow everything down and it's a pity that it happened to az because you know that was that was supposed to be that that vaccine that you know is not as expensive as the mm. mrna vaccines doesn't require that many um strict conditions in terms of storage and stuff like that and, and with it, the you know, and with the johnson and johnson as well as a single dose so yeah a lot a lot more targeted or at risk people could be targeted like they were on about this on the news like homeless people certain communities that are more likely to able to get in access to them a second time with the second dose that you could just give it to them the and developing that countries yeah that they have immunity so it's um it is pity and yeah, it's uh it's 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 just interesting how we have to another another thing as well as like how we're always weighing the risk of how much if the community transmission is low then the risk of giving the vaccine is not worth it compared to the mm. risk of thrombosis but like what if the community transmission increases really high does that mean we change it to be like okay maybe younger people can get the vaccine now and then when the transmission goes we go okay we have to increase the age limit like um because yeah i don't know it just the risk is always going to be there I like the yeah. risk is low because we're in a lockdown. <laughs> it's uh, it's so annoying because when you when you almost feel that we got a hold of it and we we have a tight yeah. grip on what's going on, this happens and everything just goes back. And it's just yeah, yeah. It's it's just an, it's it's um. I'm just so unapologetic about science. Uh, yeah. So that was the story. That's what's happened since hopefully nothing changes i was just gonna say if it does change it's hopefully for the better yeah yeah but it's it's ever changing and um it's just we just hopefully that things stay consistent we can get everyone vaccinated and we get get code coverage and we can get back to life to be normal somewhat normal maybe not really like completely normal um (laughs) Yeah, so that's all I wanted to say, uh, and I think yeah, I've I've brought this up a lot, so I think unless something major happens, I won't bring it up. I think until the next episode. So yeah, you, that Evan. was it. Yeah, well, let's uh, 
yeah, let's be optimistic. Um, yeah. So you anyways, to- you had more promising news with the yes. mRNA <laughs> vaccine for MS. MS, so yes. I'm very curious. So, uh, it was a pretty interesting paper, and I, I think I texted you guys saying, like, this is actually crazy when I was yeah. reading the results. I was like, what is happening in this paper? Yeah. It looks pretty cool. looks really promising. Um, so, yeah, mm, multiple sclerosis, that's the topic uh, for today. So for those who don't know, it's a type of autoimmune uh, disease. Um, it's a combination of both genetic susceptibility as well as uh, environmental uh, input. Um, and uh, today we will look at the multiple sclerosis from the perspective of prevalence. Uh, we're going to touch a little bit on the mechanism of action, but it is so vast and complicated that I will just I will, it will literally, I'm not even going to do the justice to the mechanism of action because it just takes too long to explain everything that's detailed. happening yeah, during the multiple sclerosis uh, disease progression. And finally, we will look at this new experimental mRNA vaccine therapy produced by no other than BioNTech. So, BioNTech. Yes. Doing absolutely nailing it right now on fire. Yeah, these guys- these guys are doing it. Uh, the mRNA technology is ever rising. Uh, so yes, as I said, it's a multiple sclerosis autoimmune disease, which means it involves the immune system, predominantly involves the T cells, and it leads to sort of an inflammation of the brain and central nervous system, to put it in the, in the broad terms. Uh, it is characterized by, as I said, inflammation and demelination and axonal degeneration. So I think inflammation is kind of straightforward. Demelination means that um, a protective layer of uh, mailing sheet that uh, surrounds neurons is being degraded. And this layer is important because it allows the, the neural signal to go along the neuronal cell rather than being lost somewhere in the, in the middle. And axonal degradation, it's in other ways, that means that the neurons are being uh, progressively degraded because mm-hmm. of the um, complications of the disease. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the prevalence. Um, so a total of 2.8 million people are estimated to live with uh, MS. So that kind of uh, narrows itself down to 35.9 per 100,000 people. And um, females are twice as likely, unfortunately, uh, to suffer from MS. Uh, In terms of country, uh, UK and the Northern Ireland, uh, the the estimated prevalence is 168 cases per 100,000 people. Similar risk in Scotland. Um, When we look at England and Wales, the prevalence drops from 84 to 112, between 84 to 112 per 100,000. For Ireland, um, that was interesting, the the most kind of recent or reliable source, it was um, studied on back in 2004, uh, but they actually compared County Donegal and County Wexford. So Donegal up north and Wexford more south. And they noticed that people from the north have a higher chance of uh, getting the MS than the people from the people from the north has a, have a higher chance of getting MS compared to people from the yeah. south. But they so reckon in, it's, there is a link 
because it's more hap- you're more likely to get it if you're in the northern hemisphere yeah. rather than like if you're close to the equator because they obviously reckon it's something to do with sunlight. It, the vitamin vitamin D is also a player. Uh, yeah. But I, this paper kind of it is also it was interesting because uh, for people who are not from Ireland, uh, there was something called plantation in Ireland where the <laughs> Irish people were being removed from the land in favor of uh scottish or uk people and uh, there is a hypothesis that since the scotland already had this high level of ms they actually brought it with them <laughs> to ireland and that's why they see that's this why it's in Donegal. So, uh, supposedly the the north the north of ireland is more affected than the south does this kind of place out how the plantation happened were the yeah that's were they more active in wow. the north than they were in the south anyway this is i don't think it's a confirmed but like, thing but uh, well, i will i just didn't think genetically we would be much different to ones from scotland or anything so to think that they would have brought it over i suppose it could happen but uh well, they, yeah. they, I think there's only slightly tilt the balance because in Donegal it was 184 per 100,000 people and in Wexford it was 120, 120 per 100,000 people. Well, it's an interesting other alternative to what everyone usually says is the it's the environment with the vitamin D, whereas it could yeah. be a bit of like ge- genetic um, contribu- contribution as well. Yeah, but like where I, even, happening. Where, even where I live in Sligo, like... In my village, like so many people have MS, it's crazy. Like, and they don't know why, 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 where, why is the reason for it? Because, well, how is it that in this small village, a lot of people that have it, like a lot, it's much more common than you would think, compared to again a town, a bigger town, um, is like, and that you would just be like, is there something in the environment that's causing this? But yeah, they can't find anything. I don't think you can say it's a founder effect because MS is not strictly genetic based disease, right? You like the environmental input is also important. Yeah. Well, no, most um, probably if you looked at the stats, it's not any higher than than anywhere else in Ireland. But it just seems like, yeah, how could this, as you said, like what a hundred, the highest is in Donegal, like a hundred and eighty per hundred thousand. Yeah. It's still not that common, and yet I know in a village of what two hundred people, maybe. No, more than 200, like 500. That, like, there's like a 10, 20 people that maybe have it's it. a hotspot. Maybe, you know, they maybe they all agreed to kind of meet up in there <laughs> and they just stayed. Yeah, uh, whatever, whatever's <laughs> got like they're just mingling. And also, Sligo is not known for its tropical <laughs> climate, so you know, the lack of sun. I thought you were going to say something else about Sligo, so <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but anyway, I also look at the Netherlands, um, the prevalence of MS, and it's actually uh, between six, 60 to 100 cases. Also, oh, it's higher 000. in Ireland. It's lower, it's lower than it is in Ireland. And, um, and the similar prevalences were uh, assessed in Belgium and France, and uh, that's kind of where I stopped looking for uh, <laughs> for the prevalences <laughs> across the Europe. I thought yeah. that was enough. And uh, yeah, of course, you you already mentioned the um, the etiology of the disease is, is is strongly linked with the sunlight and uh, vit- vitamin D, but also um, smoking is contributing factor as well. Uh, as it does as smoking contributes to all the negative things yeah. in our lives anyway no positives no positives unless you think you look cool and then <laughs> there's also this individual's genetic background 
which is actually, uh, and the main genetic risks associated with MS resides in the HLA locus. So it's, uh, it's linked with the, with the immune system. So it kind of, uh, it kind of makes sense. Um, many of the single nucleotide polymorphism, uh, like close to gene, close to genes associated with immune function, typically in regulatory rather than the coding regions. So, um, okay. perhaps it has something to do with how the immune, immune system is being, uh, instructed to function rather than just strict coding for how to make a protein. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's, uh, that's kind of wraps up the part of the prevalence and etiology in terms of pathology. It's a, it's a very tricky disease. It's a, it's a, um, T cell type of T cell mediated disease. Uh, the trick requires migration of T cells from your bloodstream into your brain and central nervous system. Uh, there is a thing called blood, a blood brain barrier, which is very tight, um, a blockage that separates uh, brain from the rest of kind of a circulatory system. Um, and the T cells have to already express certain, um, certain molecules that makes them uh, attractive and makes them flexible enough to pass through that barrier. And there's loads of kind of signaling cascades and signaling processes that happens to make this uh, available. But anyway, once the T cells get inside, um, the blood, they pass the blood brain barrier and they already, uh, the T, the, the T cells receptors are primed to recognize this, uh, antigens present on this, um, uh, on this myelin sheet. And, uh, they basically, what happens, uh, they attack it and they destroy it. So, so they're already primed before they even get into yeah, the CSF. I think so. Yeah. That's but what's from attracting what I, them in the CSF. Like, do you know, like, why is it that they're. It's like uh, they're ma it's like uh, there's like food in there and they're like ants I, I think or something. First of all, if they are in circulation, they will pass through that region. And if they if they so they uh, do it anyway, not in a healthy. Think, and, it, and if they do have their receptors, I don't think they do. You don't have you don't have immune cells in your CSF. Yeah, not in the CSF, but you have it in the blood. And when yeah. you, when when you get close to the blood barrier, barrier there. Are, that had that has receptors that are that are compatible with the ligands that are present on if the minor the, the blood bear barrier has a uh, molecules that are attract the activated uh, autoimmune T cells they will stick around uh, um, and they will at so these some point T cells pass, are, pass through so these t so it's a kind of problem that the T cells are autoreactive already they're like primed to be autoreactive and that yeah somehow they just get attracted into this Blood brain bar past blood, the blood brain barrier. And yeah, because otherwise, because otherwise, it would be very hard for them to to get through that blood brain barrier if they wouldn't have a reason. Because yeah. you don't find your immune cells in your, as you said, you don't find immune cells in CNS or in brain. Yeah, it's just it's just mad to think like, because with other autoreactive things, you would think, oh, they went, they this encounter it, and. It, they, it becomes like, or maybe they're attracted to it because they're encountering it. But this is not some the myelin sheet isn't something they encounter because it's kept in the CSF. So yeah, um, it's just as I said, I didn't really look close into like no, the, no. It's the just it's part just of, uh, It's just interesting in that yeah. um yeah, like what's attracting them into the CSF because I, and it's obviously there's some kind of re with the regulation of the T cell and they're just primed to be autoreactive. 
Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a tricky one, and the and the and the thing about the MS, I think, like the research on like how does it happen it con it's not like finished it's it's yeah. not like with certain diseases like okay so this is the pathway like with the ms i think you, you like every continuously you get new research papers uh like looking at ms from different aspects and how all of this kind of joins together it's it's a really exo it's a really exhausting and tiring subject to yeah, read about yeah. because there is so many molecules and, and relationships and as well i think isn't it that the that's why it's very hard to get treatment for ms because you have to get drugs that get passed through the brain barrier um mm -hmm. or is that yeah. true or is it just that you're dampening like i didn't generally? look at the treatment well i, I think didn't most look at of the them, current state of treatment i think I think it is you have to just dampen the immune system or try and stop the immune system and um if you want to target this T cells in this was in the CSF it's very difficult because you can't get to get them to the blood the blood brain barrier is kind of difficult so yeah yeah so as you as you can already tell um guys the um, the concept of providing treatment for MS is it's 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 complicated uh, the disease in itself is uh, it's complicated, um, but here comes this paper um, published in um, in uh, Science. Title is the non-inflammatory mRNA vaccine for treatment of experimental autoimmune and cell encephalomyelitis. So two things that I highlighted in this in this uh, in this title is non-inflammatory, which is really important. That it's a non-inflammatory mRNA vaccine. And when we think about vaccine, we actually purposely want to, want, to, uh, want to kind of initiate inflammatory response, right? But, but this paper states in its title that it's a non-inflammatory mRNA vaccine. And experimental, uh, which means that it's still, this is still being done at the level of animal model. Yeah. And autoimmune encephalomyelitis, it's a type of a disease that can be induced in mice that represents uh, MS. MS. But it's is, uh, this obviously they had done this research that say before they even had COVID, had out, the COVID-19 outbreak had happened. So it's crazy yeah. to think that um, that they were able to use that technology then for um, COVID. And as well, like it's given it so much more publicity and we're like, wow, this actually could work for sure in this um disease yeah so. i think i've um yeah the as i said the rna technology field i think really was busted thanks to uh, uh moderna and, and pfizer and BioNTech. yeah it's yeah. popping <laughs> exactly um so the aim of this paper was to show that antigen specific tolerization of the treatment of autoimmune disease is possible Okay, but what is antigen-specific tolerization? Like, I haven't heard about that uh, before. If I did, I already forgot. <laughs> but <laughs> but antigen-specific tolerization is a strategy put forward to induce tolerance against autoantigens. So very straightforward explanation. Um, and as I said, it's really, for me, it was super weird when I, so like a non-inflammatory vaccine because as I said, we think about uh, when we hear vaccine, we think about developing immunity. Uh, but here in the case of MS, we need to inhibit the already too active T cells, and uh, and that's the uh, that's the aim. Yeah. So from what I gather from it is that you're yeah. Is it like antigens that they think would prime the T cells to 
cause MS or to cause this. Uh, so actually, as you're gonna see, the whole point of of this thing is to actually shift the balance from effector T cells to regulatory T cells. Oh, okay. So you're basically so, like it's these the so it's these antigens that they think is causing or contributing to MS. They're going to try and give it to tolerance so that they won't attack them if they, if this ever happens like these autoreactive t cells encounter them is it yeah, so i might i might as well get into it okay since you so, start, yeah. start I, decipher, deciphering the mechan no no like that's what we're doing here so basically um mrna on itself uh like in the moderna vaccine and the uh, pfizer BioNTech vaccine uh, triggers inflammatory response uh, that's why for example in the case of the vaccines to to avoid this kind of a uh, immune response uh, before even the uh, mRNA gets inside the cell to be transcribed into the protein, it's being surrounded in this uh, nanoparticle, so it protects it from being detected by the scavenging immune system. And for the MS vaccine, they kind of um, they used a different strategy. They um, they replaced a nucleotide called uridine in mRNA. They replaced it with one metal pseudouridine. It's a very subtle difference from the chemical perspective when you look at the molecule. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not any more uridine. It's this, um, this pseudouridine. And what they discovered is that when you make this substitution, you are actually, your mRNA is able to avoid detection by tool-like receptors. Ah, so your mRNA really? doesn't doesn't trigger immune response. Wow. So hence, such modified mRNA can be introduced to dendritic cells without not necessarily dendritic cells can be introduced to antigen presenting cells, not limited to dendritic cells, without ex exacerbating already reactive immune system in case of people with MS. So the hypothesis is that the use of the, uh, I'm, uh, I'm gonna say pmRNA when I refer to the one metal pseudo uh, uridine mRNA, and I'm gonna say uMRNA when I'm referring to the classical uridine containing mRNA. Yeah. So this, the hypothesis is that the use of the pmRNA for in vivo delivery of autoimmune disease target antigens into um, antigen presenting cells in a non-inflammatory context would enable systemic tolerogenic antigen presentation in lymphoid tissues. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you manage to deliver an mRNA into the antigen presenting cells without triggering innate immune response system, which would be driven by tool-like receptors, uh, you are able then to present that antigen to the T cells in a non-inflammatory way, which would then uh, change the naive T cells into T regulatory cells as opposed to T effector cells. And the T regulatory cells have the ability of damping down uh, activated immune, immune system. But so uh sorry yeah so these pieces these the this is an these are in mice that have ms they're what we call ms yeah and it's dampening down the immune response it's not preventing them getting no no they I, already have ms okay because when i hear vaccine i always think it's like it's preventing yeah. them it's that it's not it's so it's a misnomer misnomer is that the right word context mis misnomer uh well these mm, 
Maybe I don't know what misnomer means. And it's basically don't forget <laughs> I'm a foreigner, but <laughs> it's basically that they're calling it a vaccine, but it's not really a vaccine. It's it's a treatment. Look, they called it a vaccine, and the science journal accepted it. It's you know if science accepted it, I'm just gonna take it as a vaccine for now until I know a little bit more about it. But like you because know what? Do you know what I mean? Like. I know you think vaccines should be used in a kind of prophylactic prevention. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe they. I'm should, wrong. <laughs> maybe they shouldn't use the vaccine word here. But okay. uh, so. yeah, but in a sense, you you use this to prime your immune system to perform an action, which is kind of what vaccine does. You use vaccine to prime your yeah, immune yeah, system that's true, yeah. to perform an action. But that's that's um, that's really innovative way of uh, it really is like that's i even tweeted about that that's how excited i got <laughs> so yeah so just to kind of just to walk you through maybe some of the tests they did to show that it actually works uh because it really co they have really strong results i keep saying that but anyway the way they tested it tremendous results <laughs> tremendous joe rogan <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> They, uh, they come up with two, MR M two mRNA molecules. One, the pMRNA, which means that the, uh, the special mRNA, mm -hmm. and yeah. the other one, the uh, uMRNA. And for the first e experiment, the, this mRNA coded for this uh, reporter gene uh, firefly luciferase. Basically, uh, if, if, it, if it's properly expressed, it will produce kind of color, right? Yeah. And the, and the control was uh, saline. And uh, these three uh, components were administered into uh, mice intravenously. And uh, as you would expect, with the uMRNA, which is the normal mRNA, it led to the strong activation of the antigen-presenting uh, cells, strong lymphocytic response, very high numbers of interferon, amma, uh, interferon alpha and other pro-inflammatory cytokines, so full-on immune response, as you would yeah, expect. Yeah. Um, they were also detecting some activated cells, uh, and, and so on and so on. Um, then these findings were not present when the mice were, when the mouse was injected with the PMRNA. Yeah. So there was, uh, but we knew it worked because the luciferase, uh, signal could be detected. Yeah. So in both cases, the luciferase signal was detect detected, except for the saline. But then the pMRNA, there was no immune response to it at all. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. None of the T cells were activated. Fascinating. So now they're changing uh, the code of the mRNA from this luciferase into, into, um, into, a gen into an mRNA code that would be uh, translated into... Uh, an epitope that is recognized by T cells that um, already are uh, uh, MS directed. Yeah. So you already have your cells that that are looking for the antigen to destroy, and now you have this uh, vaccine that codes for the epitope that they recognize. Yeah. So now we're getting like into the actual. Um, so actual it's an epitope test. that like is will be expressed in like mail on the mailing sheet. sheet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, so in here it's called uh, MOG3555. So this is the epitope. And mm, and uh, as I said, the, the mice models were again immunized with this uh, mRNA carrying the MOG3555 code. And again, they used either the pMRNA or the uMRNA. And they, um, 
and they observed uh, that uh, again in the um, in the mice that was uh, that was injected with the uMRNA, a huge response in terms of T cells. Uh, they noticed um, increased proliferation of the activated CD um, CD4 cells. Um, just full-on uh, immune reaction, but again, they did not observe any any of that with the um, with the uh, with the PA, uh, mRNA, and uh, they even they even uh, trans uh, transferred an Im- uh, immune cells from a mice that um, had this uh, activated T cells. They transferred them into a, a mice that hasn't been hasn't developed yet uh, the cells by itself. They've given it the two types of mRNA and uh, even these transferred cells, they refuse to proliferate in the presence of the pMRNA uh, yeah, vaccine. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. It's really crazy. Um, so uh, so now we know that the, uh, the vaccine uh, is capable of not inducing the immune reaction, but this, but as you remember, this is only the one thing that we want to look into. It. The other thing is the ability to to shift the balance of the immune system from the T effector to T regulatory cells, because you need this T Rex to dump down the already existing um, uh, MS environment. So what they did is uh, they went into the spleen, and um, and they uh, they injected the mice. Uh, they had to sacrifice them. They looked into the spleen, and they noticed that um, they collected the T cells, and they, they 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 were trying they were trying to phenotype the T cells, and they noticed that uh, the T cells that they see in spleen um, in the in the in the mouse that was injected with the pmRNA, it's a uh, Fox3P, which is a uh, transcription factor linked with the T regulatory cells. So they already knew that if this Fox3, FOXP3 is, is expressed, yes. it means there are T regulatory, T reg cells being developed in this, uh, in these animals. Yeah. And, uh, the, um, and they also, they also injected the mice with the other mice with the uMRNA for comparison, as you, as you know, as you have to. And the cytokine profile showed again that the uMRNA promoted secretion of inflammatory cytokines. Um, whereas the splenic CD4 T cells from the pMRNA treated mice did not secrete these pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, even when exposed to very high antigen concentrations. So, um, so they really were trying to, um, they were really, really just, trying yeah, to it trigger that them, it, yeah. it just really showed that it dampened the immune response and that yeah. and pro, a pro-inflammatory uh, pathway wasn't being promoted. So that's, that's very impressive. Yeah. And they, they had a further, they did a further experiment, uh, where they actually were able to show um, an increase uh, in the T regulatory cells. They were also able to show um, they, they did the treatment with these uh, pMRNA and then actual mice that suffers from these uh, MS, this uh, encephalo- encephalomyelitis in, ter- in the context of the mice model. And uh, after the treatment, uh, so they injected the mice on 
on certain occasions uh, and after after uh, they give it some time for the treatment to kind of kick in so they could see some results and uh, and the treatment with the pmRNA was capable of blocking all clinical signs of EAA this encephalomyelitis yeah. uh, in mice compared to saline control they noticed that timely intervention intervention in the mice models could prevent further disease progression together with restoration of motor functions in these mice. Wow, that's crazy. In the brain and spinal cord, the total amount of infiltrating CD4 T cells uh, secreting interferon gamma and interleukin-17 were considerably lower. Demelination of the spinal cord was also considerably reduced. Wow. That's like, they're getting crazy results yeah, here. Yeah. Um, it's just crazy to think that um, they had to think of like, okay, we need to dampen an immune response. Why don't we, like to come up with a, you have to come up with a method of, okay, we're going to, we have to ex- increase the expression of yeah. two regulatory cells. And to do that, we need to slightly change the mRNA. Like you really need to know your RNA like yeah um, but ha- your, have your, in mind that you know they they didn't come up with that you know yesterday yeah, like, yeah. Uh, the rna technology is like live and kicking from like 1970s onwards like you know so there is like there's loads so of chemists work. and organic chemists that like you know they just Put, they just so develop this it. modification and they test them and they see and they see what happens and but the the, the other thing that i would also like to mention here uh, i'm almost i'm almost done with this paper just one more one more slide is that it wasn't enough for them to show that they can lower down the immune response using the antigen specific um antigen the, <laughs> you know what i mean they yeah. they were they were also try to see if if they can induce um a therapeutic uh, bystander tolerance so they actually <clears throat> used not an ms specific antigen that was then converted into this uh, p mrna molecule um, i think the uh, the antigen of the the epitope of choice was um, an uh, epitope from some other autoimmune disease i think um sjl uh, i think it's an autoimmune disease uh, of skin that causes like blisters and stuff like that but anyway they they injected this uh, this specific antigen into the mice models and and they also noticed that uh this 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 antigen created this t regulatory cells in the same way uh but these t reg cells were not only looking for this different epitope um of on the t on the effector t cells to kind of dump them down these t regulatory cells were kind of like where are the effector T cells, and can I can I dump them down? So, so it just dumped uh, it just dampened all the yeah. So all, now all these the, yeah, it it dampened all the T cells that were like primed or ready yeah. to be uh, that was primed with the, out, with the auto with the auto antigen. Yeah, and uh, so now they they see potential that this therapy could be easily adaptable for more than one. Uh, type of autoimmune disease yeah especially yeah. if it's mediated by t-cells um which is really cool and the last thing which is i think really important that they show they also have proven that just because uh, just because you're able to produce these t-rex cells 
it doesn't mean that you completely um, change the way the immune system works because they did experiment where they injected a normal uh, antigen together with this pmRNA and the, uh, the mice were still able to develop T cells directly towards this specific foreign antigen in the same time as they were able to uh, develop these T regulatory oh, okay. cells. So it doesn't so your, sacrifice so the immune response. Doesn't compromise exactly. Oh, wow. yeah. I'd love to. I'd like to see more work on that because I'd be still. There has to be some kind of sacrifice for like it can't be yeah, that what, perfect. The ha- it can't the, be. Yeah. What's the caveat? I. You know, I was, uh, what's the catch? I couldn't. I was trying to be like, how can I cut them on? But like, um, I just, I just maybe I've missed it. It has. There is all. In every paper, there is something that they could have done ba- better, but I just, I didn't find it in this one, and I think yeah. it's, I, I and I think it's my fault rather than this paper being uh, flawless. I think it's just something that I'm not seeing right now. But like, so basically, if you wanted in this, even though it's for this is like for MS, this could be still used in other inflammatory diseases, and it still would have an effect because the T regs are are downplaying the the T effector cells. I think so. I think so. That's how I understand it. That's what they're it. kind of thinking. Wow. And that's what they, they draw in conclusions based on this bystander tolerance when they can just prime, they can prime immune system with some sort of self, uh, self antigen yeah, yeah. in this specific manner. And it seems like these cells then are just looking for effector T cells that are specific towards self antigens. Yeah. Yeah. God, um, it's, it's, that sounds super cool. It it's does. so targeted as well like it's super specific it's not like a lot of treatments where it's like really broad or mm. there's a lot like there's an immune suppression where yeah this one is like actually activating the part of your immune system that dampens the immune system you, you take advantage of something that it's naturally present in us yeah right? yeah yeah well that's the, this is what's the things to be the big thing in, in cancer right now is like using your body's immune system to to get it to fight the cancer more effectively rather than like using i suppose antibodies antibody monoclonal antibodies or something like that yeah wasn't it well, i suppose they do use for checkpoint inhibitors they use them but um yeah it was it like two or three years ago when these guys got a nobel prize for developing this anti ct AL4 therapy and anti Oh yeah, the checkpoint inhibitors, yeah. Yeah. That is actually monoclonal antibodies, but it's still in a way you're you're using your body's immune system to try and clear the the cancer. Because Um, cancer was hijacking this anti-immune response. mm, It was called it it, it was suppressing the immune artificially suppressing the immune system where with these checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah. Uh, anyways, that's another discussion for another time. (laughs) But um but yeah, that's like the them them Turkish couple who invented this definitely for sure could be up for a Nobel Prize. Like that's absolutely crazy. And and like are, are they starting going to go into clinical trials with us in, in pe- people? Like that sounds like they definitely should be. Well look, BioNTech is a pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company, so I'm sure they're not doing it just for the sake of some sort of fundamental research. I yeah, yeah, like, I'd say it's definitely yeah. going to go into and especially yeah. with how promising now the COVID vaccine, they'll be like we need to start like progressing and seeing how this is can be used in other yeah uh, diseases it'll so, and it'll be so easy for them to find money uh yeah for, for this because like you know we just i just went through the prevalence so there is a quite quite high number of people that 
that suffer from uh, from MS and yeah. you know I don't know anyone with MS and but like just from the reading of it like it's it's seriously deliberating disease that puts loads of uh, stress on not only on the person suffering from it but also on the family members and close ones yeah yeah so fingers crossed hopefully and uh yeah like that's like that's where the futures are like rna like rna is where it's all this technology with rna is it's so like on the cusp of like revolutionary i, I was just i was so, so smart to get into m uh rna, RNA. field yeah. <laughs> that's what i'm like get get into our get more experience with rna get that science started up make that money <laughs> 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 if you're listening that's my that's my hack for life get into rna get into rna technologies and treatments just and so easy money. like anybody could do it <laughs> that or a it's bitcoin it's literally a stretch of tart nucleotides put together that does the magic <laughs> yeah um and thank god we have it at the moment because that's the only thing that's fucking working in this for covid like that's not giving us some bs results or bs problems yeah. so um yeah, yeah that was really cool. really interesting like and we will they, watch they, they this go space the, they go into the paper doing like this single cell uh, rna sequencing just to like really confirm the the phenotype of these different of these t-cells just to confirm that it is what it is but i just thought like nobody's really like single cell rna sequencing is not really that interesting so i just skipped that part yeah yeah it's fine yeah um yeah that that was really cool thanks for that um found that fascinating and mm. yeah we'll watch the space see how it goes i'd love to see how that goes on in clinical trials and yeah I've have a, hopefully if you have free work. time uh, have a read and see maybe maybe you'll be able to find some uh, mm. some 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 negative things about this paper i couldn't yeah yeah, yeah um yeah uh that's yeah this is definitely where the the future is at with uh, regards to this technology um yeah so that that was is that all you wanted to say yeah that's me summed summed up for summed for up now. cool yeah that was that was today's episode i hope you enjoyed it today we looked at our blood groups and seen if they match our personalities let us know <laughs> if you think they do um yeah I, I um i talked about the the neanderthals and how they're actually way more recently related than we thought previously mm. uh maybe there is neanderthals living among us i made this joke already <laughs> previously sure there's few and uh and then i talked a bit just to give a bit more of a timeline of the astrazeneca why it's been t- taken off the market and i just wanted to kind of give a a conclusion to that how it is so far but it's i don't want to say conclusion because it's still an ever-evolving situation but give more context to hopefully people understand and yeah. tom then give us a nice finish off with the mrna technology and how it could be used in treating ms in the future and who knows where it could be where it could be go so yeah that was our episode well, uh, join us next next time we hopefully have more stories more discussion and yeah if you have any interesting articles interesting papers that you want us to cover please let us know Get in contact with us on Instagram, on Twitter at Skeptically I, and or email us at skepticallyinclined at gmail.com. Again, skeptically with a C. (laughs) And yeah, we we really, any feedback is great. We appreciate it. And Tom, any last (laughs) words? Uh, No. 
just suppose stay skeptical guys as always yeah see you skeptical guys and we will catch you in the next one bye bye